The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest herbalist, Holly Bellabono, is director of Vineyard Herbal Teas and Apothecary and director of the Bellabono School of Herbal Medicine. She's also the author of several books, including The Essential Herbal for Natural Health and The Authentic Herbal. And she's here today on Health Watch to talk about her latest, Women Healers of the World, The Traditions, History, and Geography of Herbal Medicine. Welcome to Health Watch, Holly Bellabono. Hi, David. Thanks. It's good to be here. So why don't we uh, acquaint our listeners to uh, the story around how you came to write this book? Well, I've been an herbalist for a long time, um, about 20 years. And over the course of that time, really enjoyed working with plants. That was the key focus for me. Um, But it slowly grew and grew to where my focus included the people who work with plants, as well as the plants themselves. And by that, I mean, I really, my eyes were opened to the people, men and women throughout time, who have worked with plants, who have uh, studied plants, and who have healed other people in a a medicine capacity with plants. And the more I realized how much people, you know, how much of a heritage it is with people, um, the more I realized that women were uh, underrepresented in science and medicine and research. Um, Typically, I can name a, a good handful or more of men who are considered botanists or chemists or researchers, and uh, I just can't really name many women. Um, when I first started the, this project, I could name maybe Elizabeth Blackwell and Florence Nightingale, um, Marie Curie, and that was about it. <laughs> and I thought, you know, women are very underrepresented, but it's herbalism and working with plants and this healing is very much a woman's um, uh, genre, if you, if you will. Uh, it, herbalism is, is very much in the, in the realm of women's work and healing and being in the home and working in the garden harvesting and uh, crafting, and I thought it would be very special to honor the women who have contributed this, to this heritage. Um, and so I began interviewing women that I had met at herbal conferences, uh, Rosemary Gladstar, Susan Weed, Cascade Anderson-Geller, just with a few basic questions, and uh, it grew from there. I would mention my project to someone, and they would say, oh, do you know this um, this woman in Peru who runs an orphanage, and she teaches all of the children at her orphanage how to use calendula and different herbs in her greenhouses, uh, both for in their kitchen, but also she trains them how to make herbal medicines and take care of themselves. And so I contacted this woman, that was Mama Kia Ingenlath, uh, and she became part of my book. Um, and someone else said, you know, do you know this woman in Scotland? Her name is Mary Beath, and she chronicles Gaelic pharmacy and records all of the ancient folklore and uh, protocols associated with a, really a vanishing system of medicine. So I contacted her, and she became part of it. So it really grew uh, very naturally uh, just from a, a, a desire to celebrate these women and let other people know that they were out there. Well, one of the really interesting and compelling parts of the of the book also was seen uh, the resistance and the that a lot of these women healers had from 
uh, either the government or from authorities or from maybe people in their own families even and the and their uh, persistence around overcoming it uh, could you could you talk about some examples uh, of some yeah. women healers and and what they had to go through around um, the the overarching society and and their opposition to it yeah, generally these women have been very persistent. They're very tenacious ladies. They worked really hard to pursue what was important to them. For instance, one of the women that I talked with is Doña Enriqueta Contreras, who is a uh, Oaxacan um, midwife in Mexico, a Zapotecan midwife. She early, very early on, um, when, she, when she was still a child, learned midwifery and became the community's choice as a midwife because she was very good at it and people felt safe with her and she had a lot of knowledge, empirical knowledge, hands-on that she had gained from, um, from working with other people and being present at birth but also from being present at animal births because uh, she was around um, goats and had spent a lot of time as a child around goats and had seen what was a very natural process. And uh, her knowledge led her to become a very well-respected and in-demand midwife, at least for the women, the, the mothers who were giving birth. The men, unfortunately, um, in her society and culture at the time were not as supportive. She was more expected to stay at home and not have a job and not have money coming in and not to travel because she traveled all over the various states of Mexico to provide these services. And um, it was very difficult for her and her family because her husband was not supportive, the other men in the community were not supportive, uh, it actually became rather risky for her to pursue this. Um, she told me that she was even involved in a drive-by shooting. Uh, somebody shot at her, uh, and she believes it was because she was not the stay-at-home wife that was expected of her. Um, but she persevered, and over the course of 60 years, she helped deliver more than 2,000 babies Never once did she lose a mother or baby in childbirth, which I think is pretty phenomenal. And she's in her 70s now. She doesn't uh, provide those services anymore, but she does teach. And she's very much a mentor for young women um, coming into healthcare, helping to emphasize to them how important it is that they get empirical, hands-on knowledge and not just study from a book. Well, that brings up an that brings up an interesting uh, theme that that reoccurs in women healers of the world too you you mentioned that it, traditionally herbalism is in the per, is a, in the purview of women more than men and there's definitely a sense in the book that it's a, no, a knowledge that's passed down uh, from mentor to apprentice and there's some tension in the histories of many of these women between accumulate, accumulated wisdom or accumulated knowledge passed down from person-to-person person versus the uh, pressures to be certified or to have gone to an, a, a specific type of uh, approved school. Can, can you talk a little bit about that in relationship to herbalism? You mean the whole idea of uh, being certified or a more organic approach from hands-on experience? Yeah, I mean, it seems like that somehow plays also into this, this gender uh, differentiation not entirely of course but you do you do no, prof yeah, no, I, definitely I, I understand what you're saying is that um perhaps you know women haven't had the opportunity to get the training that they need to get certificates or licenses or um, degrees 
that would help them move forward in a healthcare capacity, and especially in herbal medicine. Those things really don't exist. You can't get a license in herbal medicine in, in America. Um, there is no license. There are certificates, but not a license. And now, you're, you know, there are more universities and colleges that are offering degrees in herbal medicine through, you know, a bachelor's in science or something similar. Um, but aren't there also past, herbalists who are ambivalent about whether there should be certification, that perhaps it oh, should sure. be preserved it's as a mentor-apprentice relationship? Yeah, it's a, it's, I don't want to say it's a big debate, but it's definitely an issue that, that is, um, you know, there's no great uh, cohesion among herbalists. Of it should be this way, it should be that way. Everyone has their own opinion. And there is a, a large group of people who say, you know, there shouldn't be any certificates at all. It should still be very much person-to-person handed down approach because it's a folk tradition. Herbal medicine is the people's pharmacy. You know, it's our birthright is to have this information about how to use plants, especially since the plants are in our backyard and they're right there. Um, Everyone should have access to them and also um, the right to treat yourself um, in a health capacity. And so, sure, in that respect, a certificate is not needed and could be cumbersome and it could be it could actually stand in the way of somebody who really wanted to learn about the plants it's not necessary and on the other hand a certificate um, can be useful for a student who wants to go into the um, a wider world of midwifery or nursing or naturopathy and apply that knowledge to credits in a school that they're in um, to show that they have put forth a, a number of hours and study and have accumulated a certain type of knowledge that isn't, you know, out there just for the taking, that you have to make an investment, and it's a, a form of commitment, and well, it shows that you're, you've pursued a certain uh, schooling. So there's both, there's both ways to look at certification. Well, I like how you profile the whole spectrum today, because, you know, Western herbalism seems like a strange mix of, of Native American tradition, uh, European herbal traditions, and then modern uh, evidence-based research that's been done on herbs. And different herbalists are going to fall in different places on the spectrum. And uh, on the one hand, you do have folk herbalists, but then you also have uh, some medical doctors who are also um, from the line of herbalists. I think of Tirona Lodog, for instance. Mm -hmm. Sure. There's a wide range of um, different ways and capacities that people get involved with herbal medicine. Uh, David Hoffman is another herbalist, uh, not in the book, um, but he's from Wales and now you know, has lived in America for a long time, and he's very much um, a kind of herbalist that focuses on pharmacology and the chemistry of plants. But I think he does a, and he's interesting in that he also approaches medicine from a very spiritual perspective. Um, Tiarona Lodog that you mentioned, she's a physician, um, very well-known medical doctor, but she practiced early on in herbal medicine and midwifery, uh, very hands-on plant-based studies that really piqued her curiosity. And she's one of those integrative physicians that really enjoys combining the folk traditions with modern medicine, which I think is really important. I, I think there should be a nice balance there. I don't, I don't think that you can have only herbal medicine, and I don't think you can have only modern or allopathic medicine. I think they they combine and they complement each other so well. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to herbalist Holly Bellabono about her latest book, Women Healers of the World, The Traditions, History, and Geography of Herbal Medicine. Holly, uh, could you talk about uh, 
one of the ancient herbalists that you profile in the book. I know not all of the herbalists in the book are contemporary. And I was particularly interested in Maria, the alchemist, chemist from Alexandria, and the various devices that she invented that ended up changing chemistry in some way in some ways she was a really neat one yeah so in the book there are 21 contemporary women that i interviewed who are living today and 10 ancient women and uh of the ancient women maria prophetisa was one um she was a gnostic alchemist in alexandria um sometime around 100 200 a.d we're not sure exactly when she was an interesting woman because she wrote a book called the Maria Practicum about her chemistry and um, uh, research in her laboratory in Alexandria. The book is lost now. We don't have it, but there are historians that have referred to it, so we know that it did exist. And she, I, I like to imagine her as a, um, a real experimenter, that she was um, playing around. As an, as an alchemist, you know, alchemists back then, their, their primary goal was to transform substances into gold. Um, and she was a Gnostic. So as a Gnostic alchemist, I think she took it a little higher uh, in the spiritual realm. M- many Gnostics believed that the spirit was trapped in matter, and so they wanted to find ways to release the spirit and uh, free the soul. And so you have all this transmutation going on, um, and in the process of, of these experiments, she led to the, or she discovered uh, several things that we use today. She is credited by many sources today as the discoverer of hydrochloric acid, which probably was a mistake at the time. I don't think she was trying to discover that, but uh, she is credited as the first person to um, isolate or, or create hydrochloric acid. And more impo- importantly, at least for herbalists and uh, perfumers today, homeopathics and naturopathics, anyone who uses um, hydrosols or essential oils, she created what she called the tribecos which was basically the still. She was the person who invented this, the distillation machine. And it was a three-chambered machine where you took plants um, and basically steeped them in water uh, until the water started to evaporate. And she devised a method using uh, ceramic and uh, clay and glass pipes to capture that steam that was, re- that was evaporating and funnel it back into a place where it could be captured and because the essential oils are volatile, they would rise with the steam and be captured. And that was the first instance of, um, of someone figuring out how to do that. And the reason that that's important today is because essential oils are widely used in perfumery, and they're extremely antibacterial. They um, can kill a lot of um, pathogens, funguses, uh, bacteria. And so they're used uh, in first aid and topical treatments um, for the skin especially. Well, so that, was, that was quite a contribution from her, and it, granted, a lot of it is mysterious. We don't know for certain exactly what she did, but she did open the door for people to come after her and, um, you know, build on her, her knowledge and her discovery and really create the industries that we have today. Well, you mentioned uh, the use of the essential oils for skin health, and, and you do have sections in, in the book uh, that profile individual herbs and also go into some of the processes of how to make um, medicines. What would be some of the things that you mentioned in the book that, you know, a contemporary reader would, could potentially make or use for dealing with skin conditions? 
Yeah, or so for I skin health. A, uh, okay. Yeah, I have a chapter in the book called Handcrafting Traditions, which are recipes um, that are inspired by the women in this book. So they're very common. They're recipes for very common things, like a steam uh, that you would inhale when you have a stuffy nose or an ointment that you put on your skin uh, to, uh, to heal a wound. Um, very common traditional herbal methods. And I base them uh, on the different women throughout the book and their, uh, their favorite herbs or the way that they like to work with plants. Um, just to give people um, a chance to use the book productively and make something of their own with it. So, for instance, the steam um, and, and essential oils. A steam is so easy to make, and it can be very beneficial if your nose is stuffy or you have a sore throat. Uh, in the wintertime, you know, you've got the, you know, congested uh, airways. Um, you can take hot water and a few drops of essential oil, thanks to Maria Prophetisa, uh, and uh, put a towel over your head and hover over a bowl, a bowl with the hot water and the essential oils, and that steam will rise and help clog your airways or declog. Um, you can think about eucalyptus doing that. A lot of people use eucalyptus in, in spas um, because it's so, it's so fragrant, but it also can help... Um, dry up uh, congested nasal passages. So that's easy. Um, I really prefer, though, working with fresh plants, whole plants, and I really like to teach people to go out in the garden or in a field or in your city park or wherever you might be and learn to identify the plants that are around you and use those fresh. And one way to really do that is with an oil. And you can um, say you go out and you find wild plantain or yarrow or you have a garden and you're growing lemon balm or rosemary or sage, you can harvest these herbs fresh and chop them up. As long as they're not very wet, you want to keep everything pretty dry and put them in a mason jar and cover, that mason, uh, cover them up with an oil like canola or olive oil, some sort of um, thick kitchen oil. And then you put a lid on it and you label it, which I have discovered is very important because you don't want to forget what's in it. Um, and you let it sit for anywhere from two weeks to, say, six months. It's very forgiving. It can be a long time. And you shake it occasionally, and then you strain it. Alternatively, if you don't have that kind of time or you don't want to wait, you can do it on a saucepan on the stove on very low heat. Um, gently, gently heat through the oil with these herbs, and what happens is the plants release many of their chemicals into the oil. And so the oil becomes this infused um, medicine so that when you do strain the leaves out, the oil is your menstruum or your medicine. And you can put that directly on your skin. For instance, if you've used uh, yarrow, which is a wild uh, wildflower, it's very astringent and it also is antibacterial. Um, that oil, which is infused with the yarrow, can be placed on cuts and scrapes it can help reduce uh, chances of infection. It can help soothe the skin. Uh, it can help tighten uh, skin cells and astringe any sort of weepy sore. It's a very easy, easy folk remedy. Uh, and that's the kind of remedy that I really like people to learn about because it makes it accessible, especially for children, for anyone wanting to learn about um, plants and making them more a part of your daily life. So those are good kitchen crafting remedies and a really nice way to begin your, your entry, your foray into herbal medicine.
Uh, and it sounds like a lot of these processes are, are easy for anybody to learn. They're very simple. You know, you can get, you can get very complex, um, but you don't have to. Some of the things that are the easiest, for instance, a tea, an herbal tea, there isn't anything easier than harvesting some herbs, putting them in a pot, and pour, pouring hot water over them. Um, and that's the basis of an herbal tea or a tisane or an infusion. And that's an excellent way to get the vitamins and minerals out of a plant and to hydrate yourself at the same time uh, and to enjoy something really delicious because a lot of these herbs taste very nice um, and they're beneficial at the same time. So, yeah, super simple, super easy, um, really welcoming, very forgiving, as I said. It's hard to go wrong. Um, there might be a few handful of plants that you kind of want to avoid, um, poison ivy, <laughs> poison sure. oak. Uh, especially if you're pregnant or nursing, you have to take extra care. But for the most part, a lot of our wildflowers and garden plants um, make excellent herbal remedies for health, both internally and externally. And I really like to encourage people to, uh, to choose maybe one or two plants and make as many things as you can with just those one or two and really get to know that plant really well. Uh, one of the one of the, the other things that I really found compelling in in the book was also that while there are a lot of um, challenges that the contemporary women healers you profile face, they seem like they're probably challenges that a lot of uh, women before them have also had to face in in the healing arts. Some, but some of them are seem particularly contemporary, and and one of them is herbalism in an era of uh, habitat destruction and and lowering of, of plant and animal diversity in the, in, on the globe. Can, can you talk about any of the, the women in regards to uh, what's going on now? Yeah. yeah, one of the women I interviewed in particular, uh, Song Wangmo, she's a physician from Tibet, and that was very, a very serious issue for her. She grew up in Tibet. Um, she was told that she would be a doctor. That was how it was done. Uh, when she was a child and an adolescent, your parents chose your career for her, and so her parents decided that she would be a physician, which she was actually happy about because she wanted to be a physician because her older brother was. And so he took her under his wing and helped her get through medical school, and uh, she thrived in it and became a very well-respected doctor and eventually moved to the United States, uh, and she's in Massachusetts um, running uh, a Tibetan medical school. And one of the things that she impressed upon me was the loss of habitat for her, the plants that she's familiar with, both in the, in the U.S. and in Tibet, that habitat is, is definitely being threatened. Um, she said sometimes it's hard to find the plants that she needs. Um, her, her locus for plants is very specific, for instance, she would harvest, um, say, a plant was growing all over a mountainside, both sides of the mountain, based on their traditions and the way they use these plants, perhaps the, only the plants on the southern side of the mountain would be harvested because the plants on the northern side acted in a completely different way. But if the plants on the southern side of the mountain were being, if that southern side was being developed or um, over-harvested, especially for companies that sell uh, wholesale herbs in great quantities, uh, she couldn't get the plants that she needs. So that was a big issue for her. Also for Kate Gilday, she's another herbalist I profile. She's um, a wonderful Western herbal practitioner in the Adirondacks in, North, in New York. And that was an issue for her, too. She said, you know, it's really 
it, it kind of breaks her heart to see that a lot of the herbs that are so integral to this heritage are fading away. And to thankfully to address that problem, there is a, an organization called United Plant Savers. I believe it's unitedplantsavers.org. And they were created specifically to educate people about the loss of habitat for medicinal plants and to help save those plants. Hmm. So it, it's definitely an issue that's being addressed because it's widespread and it's unfortunate, but um, hopefully we can reverse that. And some of the plants are going, uh, becoming more endangered actually because of demand for their use medicinally. Like I think of golden seal yeah. being over-harvested in the U.S., for exactly. instance. And ginseng, yeah. Um, it, it's a shame now that herbal medicine is getting the the praise and the interest that it is, on one hand, that's wonderful. <laughs> and on the other hand, it's kind of frightening because uh, because the plants that we rely on, there just aren't enough of them to, to meet the demand. So that's it's a huge issue. You know, how do we continue this heritage and preserve the knowledge of these particular plants without killing them off in the process? And do you have a, a website where people could learn more about you and, and the book? Definitely. It's vineyardherbs.com, V-I-N-E-Y-A-R-D, herbs. I'm on Martha's Vineyard. Um, so there are uh, there's a lot of information about the book and uh, products I sell in my apothecary and uh, the school that I run, um, welcoming new students all the time. Could, could you maybe end the, the program today with a couple thoughts on Cascade Anderson-Geller, since she was she was a local herbalist here for a long time, and uh, I think probably our listeners would be interested in hearing about her. Yeah, she, um, she impressed upon me during our interview uh, that she was a rebel. <laughs> she was quite rebellious. She entered herbalism through rebellion, and uh, in her early formative years, she was a political activist and uh, um, really came into herbal medicine as a way of ditching other responsibilities and moving on her own path, which a lot of us can really relate with. You know, or most parents don't want their children to grow up to be herbalists. <laughs> they want them to do something productive or successful or uh, lucrative, and uh, Cascade um, seemed to be very much uh, an enjoyable rebel, um, and I, I think she... I'm sure had a, a huge following in your area and uh, is much missed. Um, she she did a lot for for people, I think especially young people, um, because one of the things she told me was she really wanted to make um, medicines for each person, you know, very personal and very delicious and very welcoming. She wanted people to welcome their uh, medicines instead of just having to swallow a, a pill or, you know, not not relate with it. She wanted people to, to connect with those plants, and uh, I really commend her for that. It must have been a fun enterprise for you to travel everywhere and, and meet all of these women. You know, I didn't travel everywhere. I traveled um, quite a bit, but not everywhere. I would love to go to some of these other countries that I wasn't able to get to uh, and meet with these women. They're all so extraordinary. Um, but it was very eye-opening. You know, I learned so much throughout this process. It took me seven years. Um, I started writing the book in 2008, so it's been a, a long project and a very rewarding one. I just I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to to meet a lot of these women and to share their stories and to learn what I learned. <laughs> um, well, 
Well, thanks for being on Health Watch, Holly. The book is not only just an, an, a very informative book, but it's also a beautiful object full of great pictures and maps and such, too. So people should definitely Thank check you. it out. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We are talking today with herbalist Holly Bellabono, the author of Women Healers of the World, The Traditions, History, and Geography of Herbal Medicine. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.